Hello, I'm really happy that you can join me for this, the very first episode of my new podcast, Back to Life. My name's Millie, I'm a DJ and radio producer, and I'm also a person in recovery. In this podcast, I'll be talking to artists, musicians and creators to find out how they've come back from some really difficult places and the role of music, art and creativity in their lives now. We'll be talking about mental health, addiction, trauma and the whole human experience in all its messy glory. I'm making this podcast really because I want to better understand how we can use our most difficult experiences to not only create beautiful things in the world, but also to help others in really beautiful ways. So thanks again for joining me and I hope that you'll also learn lots from these conversations with remarkable and inspiring people who've overcome so much. And I'm buzzing because today my first guest is the DJ producer and record label owner Eris Drew. Eris is one of my absolute favourite DJs and people. She not only has incredible taste in music and unmatched skills on the decks, but she has a really unique energy and way of looking at and being in the world. I've already learned so much from her about music, life, spirituality and healing. And so I'm really happy to get this opportunity to sit down with her and really get deep into it. She's someone who found success later in life after years of struggle. And she's also a trans woman, all of which we're going to be really getting into in this episode. Eris spoke to me from her cabin in the woods in New Hampshire, where she's been locked down for the last year with her partners Q and Maya, also known as Octa Octa, her partner in life and music. So as lockdown restrictions have started to ease, I asked her how she was feeling about getting back to life. You know, I was thinking about it in the minutes before our call today, actually, because it's it's just like on my mind kind of constantly. On the one hand, I have to be really honest and like just to think about playing events and be talking to people about traveling again feels wonderful. Um, and it's really exciting to think about getting to see people and do the thing I love and dance with people and like spend time together. I mean, all this is really wonderful sounding. I'm nervous, though. You know, I'm nervous about the timeline, like like are things going to happen too fast and things like that. So I find myself excited, but also that's like a very kind of tense excitement (laughs) because I think this could go different ways and we we still don't know. And so I, I, you know, I just, um, everybody wants to get back to it quick. And I, you know, I just, I don't want us to jump the gun. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's quite overwhelming, isn't it? After being, in such an isolated bubble for so long um and personally as as someone who's certainly had my share of social anxiety as um i'm sure that's something a lot of people can relate to the prospect of going back to socializing with people though like very exciting is also pretty scary yeah i mean maya and i were just talking um yesterday about this we even used the word like we're both kind of scared to be away from each other and to kind of go back out there because we have such like a little I mean, sort of nest of safety here in a sense. And, um, you know, I mean, it's trans day of visibility, right? So, yeah, I'm nervous to go back out in the world right now. I mean, trans people have been really politicized in the last 12 months. Um, and, then, you know, we are periodically, and, and of course our politics are always very real, but it's like we've become quite a target in just sort of the mainstream media in a way, um, which I, it seems feels new. Um, I'm really excited to get out there, but also really kind of nervous about it too. Actually, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Uh, just so happens that we're recording this on the trans date of visibility. And I was wondering, what do you think of, of days like this and how helpful do you think they are? 
Well, you know, it's a real mix of feelings about days like this. Because on the one hand, I think it's important and we need days to recognize people. I mean, there was just Black History Month in the United States. And I think it's really important because as a white kid educated in the school system here, you know, Black History Month was always a time when like some of that white supremacist narrative was going to be challenged. And so, you know, I think having days like Trans Visibility Day are important to sort of solidify you know, people in a day, uh, you know, to give them a sense of visibility in that day or, or to, um, you know, these sort of signposts for the movement. But they're also sort of problematic, you know, like I woke up today feeling kind of, you know, a little off because people use it as a kind of like a marketing tool or, you know, as, as a way to sort of show support, but it feels kind of empty because what most trans people need is really basic stuff and we're not getting it, you know, like an income and jobs and just like safety walking around. <laughs> Yeah, I, I yeah, I completely get that. It can feel kind of um, tokenistic sometimes, can't it? When everyone sort of does a nice social media post, but actually, how does that kind of continue that intention? But I suppose it it can be useful for setting an intention and raising awareness. I mean, it's really important for people to have some you know times to express solidarity with each other, or 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 that they want to support people that are different than them, or whatever. But yeah, it does it does feel tokenizing in its own way. So, Eris, I wanted to like go back a little bit just to kind of um, understand a bit more about who you are, where you come from. And I wanted to ask you about uh, your childhood. What kind of child were you and what was your sort of childhood like? I was an only child. Um, and I was born in 1975. Um, I lived in, in kind of like a small town for the first like five or six years of my life. Um, that's before we moved to Chicago. Um, so that was like a, a small town in Wisconsin. And most of my time was spent like alone. Um, I was like a pretty creative kid. I like to spend time in nature and like with our with our animals. Um, I like to build things and put on plays. And, uh, you know, and I was, I don't know, I was like philosophizing at a pretty young age. Like my parents were like, um, were atheists and were talking to me about kind of big issues when I was little. And so I, I don't know. I was like uh, a sort of introspective creative kid sensitive and and only child so you know I I don't know I was kind of a shock when I went to school (laughs) yeah so did you feel lonely as a child I did later um not so much when I was young because I I felt pretty fulfilled by you know these other things um and by sweet parents because I had very nice parents growing up which I'm really lucky it does sound pretty idyllic as well this sort of like running around in nature and being creative and putting on plays and yeah I mean it was the first few years of my life were like that I had a wonderful relationship with my grandmother who lived close by and my my oldest cousin who was kind of like a, a sister to me um and so those were yeah that was sort of the the sort of paradise you know which was lost at some point you know we grow up so we moved to Chicago when I was like in about third grade and I don't know you know that was when I sort of started to kind of yeah, I have some uh, experiences of gender dysphoria. My dad was really sick and had to have like a, a pretty intense surgery that year. And my family was just like having some issues. And so um, I don't know, I sort of remember that being like the time when I had a sort of loss of innocence, I guess I would say. And how old were you then? I guess about eight. And I was like really realizing I wasn't like other kids, too, which is always like, you know, common thing but it takes many forms <laughs> and mine mine was you know hard and weird 
I feel like eight is a really significant age, actually. Eight is like an age where I started to decide that I was, I wanted to be vegetarian, and, you know, like. Yeah, and I did the same thing around that. Yeah, 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 it is that age where you're starting to like really become aware of yourself as an individual and, and sort of like try to kind of test out your own autonomy, I guess. And I definitely, I also have a couple of friends now who have eight to 10 year olds who are experiencing, as you say, like gender issues, they aren't comfortable in the gender they're born in and, and they are like, you know, very young, you know, so there's it, definitely something that happens around eight, I think. Well, I mean, I definitely a few things I'd want to say in response to that. One is, you know, I, yeah, it, it was significant for me, for sure, because I started to express some feelings I was having at that at that point in my life in ways that I can kind of look back and be like, oh, okay, I know what that was. But, um, you know, that was my experience. And certainly, like, it's super different for everybody, you know. You know, and also, I did want to also just point out, just in terms of, of language, I don't think we really know a lot about trans bodies. So kind of saying someone was born into the gender, you know, I don't know. I mean, I've been dealing with this since I was a kid. So no one's ever studied our bodies. No one really knows what's going on. And what we do know is that gender and sex are a lot more complicated than this sort of Victorian idea about chromosomes so I don't really like to kind of label the experience that way yeah completely yeah that's interesting I because I used to teach in um, Thailand and in Thailand the attitude to gender is quite different it was quite accepted that there were the kids there that didn't fit into you know male or female gender and and that was from a really young age and it was completely accepted part of society yeah, no, I guess there's lots of different different kind of cultural interpretations around that as well. Well, that's the interesting thing. So we can't say that there are always transgender people at all times and places, but we can say that gender variance has been part of the human experience since the beginning. There's plenty of evidence on that, and there's plenty of ways that gender variant experiences get sort of filtered through culture. I mean, you just gave one example. And, you know, I don't, I, it's, it's not for me to comment on that culture necessarily, not being someone who's raised in it, because there are probably, my, my guess is, based on my own, my own experience and what I've read and, and talking to others, is that gender variant people are viewed in a culture you know, it's always a matter of degree. And what I mean by that is we are always, in some sense, marginalized in that culture. So there might be a kindness or at least like a, a visibility towards people who are gender variant in a particular culture. But that doesn't mean that they're, they haven't been, in some sense, set aside or marginalized or, you know, suffer oppression. So it is interesting, though. I mean, one thing I hear a lot is, you know, transgender people are like new and it's taking everyone a while to get used to this. And it's like, no, no, no. We've been around a long time. And this cultural mode that you and I were born into is one that said we didn't exist. And we weren't real and that our experiences weren't valid and that essentially it erased us out of history. Um, and, you know, that was a colonial process. Yeah, absolutely. And that just actually reminds me of um, of your instagram bio which is um i can't i can't remember what what is it can you, you, you it's should... uh it says dissolve boundaries and models unlock your body um find each other and maybe in a different order yeah <laughs> but what i'm what i'm really trying to say is is that we have to invest in our own subjective experiences and we have to kind of um believe ourselves and and, you know, there's um, a lot of talk about trans bodies, but one thing I know is that my, my body is beautiful and powerful. It's mine. It is the vessel I occupy this world in. 
And, um, you know, I think that's worth saying out loud. Absolutely. Um, and that's my basic musical philosophy, right? Like, I'm, I, I use the music to hopefully accomplish what I say on my Instagram. <laughs> well, exactly. That's what I wanted to ask you about next, actually, was what was your kind of... Can you tell me about your formative experiences with music and particularly with rave music and rave culture and how that changed you as a person? Well, I, I definitely started cultivating what I call a deep listening or what Pauline Oliveros would call it like a deep listening practice when I was young. So, you know, I was a kid who liked to sit with the headphones on, listen in the dark. Me and my friends took music seriously, my couple of friends that were weird like me. <laughs> so I would say it started before raving, but Whatever I was looking for, I think I sort of found it rave music because the rave music just split me open and opened me up. You know, I was uh, I grew up in Chicago in the 90s and there were like amazing rave parties and a wonderful warehouse rave scene and loft party scene, a house music scene in Chicago. And the intersection of the two was like really amazing. So I was going out all the time. I was young and I was experimenting with psychedelics and other substances. And so me and my friends had a set of very powerful experiences um, over the course of, I would say, like a two or three year period. Um, you know, the night I talk about sometimes and that I remember the most and that became kind of my guiding light in life was, uh, you know, what I call my mother beat experience night. I uh, basically took a lot of acid at a party with a friend and we danced for hours into these speaker stacks. It was hallucinatory and pretty beautiful. And we left while we were still intoxicated and my friend who was sober drove us home and on the way home we heard the uh the party still in the air conditioner i mean basically an air conditioner is like an oscillator it's just sitting there cycling and we were in such an intense you know sort of state of deep listening and also of sort of you know ecstatic intoxication that um we sort of heard this as a sort of fundamental beat you know my friend looked at me and said that's the mother beat that's the mother beat and I was like yeah yeah you know I was like I hear it too you know and and the thing is that you know somebody's oh you two are loaded well sure but after that I kind of heard it in everything you know and and I, I I kept thinking well why was it so important to us to sort of hear the techno in like this sort of mundane machine and why did we hear that as a sort of like a, a powerful sort of feminine archetype I mean, we were just talking about colonialism. I mean, it's interesting, you know, the, the, the sort of powerful feminine goddess is you know, was practically eradicated in terms of like Western, you know, Western religion. You find, um, you know, par uh, parts of it in like Virgin Mary worship and things like this. But like, I mean, the gods are men, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. And so you've taken that that with you, that that experience and that sort of you, that now underpins the work that you do through music. Yeah, I mean, definitely. You know, I, I, as a transgender person, I came out late in life. And for many years, I didn't really have language for the experience I was having as an individual. Um, I had no community in it. I mean, even though I was part of the house music community and, you know, I would, there were club kids I knew and stuff, like, there wasn't, we, you know, we weren't talking about what transgender was, you know, it just, I, I didn't really have a a solid idea of who I was and it's but I'd certainly been taught who I was you know um and there's something about this experience that kept reminding me you know that that there was something um well you know that 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 there was something sort of feminine in me and that I could connect with and that was very real um and so um you know for years when I led a very closeted life as an adult um, music was this little place where I could express um, 
my femininity, my identity, my spirituality, um, you know, like a safe place to do that um, and a powerful sort of tool to do that. So, you know, I think that that's, it's hard to put into words, but I think that that's why that that was important for me all those years. You know, I mean, I, I came out at like, what, 38, 39, something like that. So, so do you feel like rave culture has always been a sanctuary for you? And I guess I'm asking because I feel with everything, it's our relationship to it, not necessarily the thing itself. And I know for me, like my relationship to it, you know, like you, when I found it, I was like, this is it. Like, this is where I wanted to be. This is where I need to be. I can be me. And um, it was like such a relief. And I was like, I, this this is how I want the world to be forever now. Thanks very much. But, you know, it didn't stay like that, you know, and, and things changed and, you know, the scene changed and I changed and the substance has changed. And again, my relation to sub, relationship to substance has changed. So, you know, there were there were definitely years where I kind of fell out of love with it. So I was just wondering about your relationship and, and how that kind of changed. Yeah, I mean, it was like that for me, too. You know, it's been it's been both this really positive thing in my life. And also, though, this kind of, I mean, you know, not to be so binary in my thing, but like a positive and a negative thing. You know, it's been something that's given me a lot, something that's taken something, too. And part of the reason I wanted to talk to you today is because, you know, I've had an incredible journey the last few years. You know, I've, I've DJed around the world. I'm living a good life and I'm happy. But like, it wasn't like it was like just this golden path from being a raver in the 90s to getting here. It was actually like hard and filled with a lot of crap and and and, and tough years and years of substance abuse and getting into stuff I wish I'd never gotten into. That's the thing, you know, the rave scene is really remarkable and amazing, and I want people to come to it, and I want people to engage with it in pretty hardcore ways, actually. But, you know, when you are when you open yourself up to those kinds of experiences, um, you know, you are vulnerable, and there's a lot at these parties. It's like you said, it's like the context can be so different depending on where you're at in your life, who you are. And so I found that for a lot of people who, like you and me, found, like, kind of community identity all this stuff in rave you know the other thing you find there is like sort of normalization of like a lot of drug use while for some people can kind of navigate that context and that that's okay for them for a lot of people that's it's not you know things happen we go through traumas we go through different things and so you know our relationship to substances can really change over time you know what can one day sort of be something you do raving with friends can then turn into something that you're doing alone or that you're even lying to people about or you know I, I've had my most sort of spiritually mag- magnificent experiences at raves but you know I've, I've also gotten into trouble so to speak and I worry about a lot of people especially now because we're about to go back you know we're about to be back to life and raving and it's like uh, we're all going to need that release and catharsis and uh, even Maya and I you know because I, I haven't used like any kind of hard substances in many, many years. But Maya and I were talking, you know, I was like, you know, I've had fantasies about doing it again in isolation. Because it's something about like the sort of ritual of being together and like everyone's partaking in this thing. And I think being so distant from people for so long has actually made me to where as like, I would be like, yeah, no, it's not really something I want to do. I was, I actually like had some thoughts about it. And that was kind of strange for me because it's been a long time. So... If I'm having that experience, I figure lots of other people are also kind of like wanting to party and 
and also pretty traumatized by the last fucking year of their lives, you know? I guess that's why I see the sort of value in having these conversations. And I think that's why I really wanted to talk to you because I think, but what I, I love about about you and kind of the message that you spread really is that, you know, healing through rave as well. So it, it's a different approach. It's not just pure escapism, pure hedonism. It's kind of doing it mindfully. It's like, it's honoring it as a kind of sacred ritual. And I think like in our guts, we know that it's it's something right, but then society tells us it's something like decorative and kind of yeah. disposable and ornamental yeah yeah exactly and you get this kind of like guilt oh I shouldn't you know I shouldn't want to go out dancing it's yeah it's like- I mean that's that's why I call my lecture series more than a party because I just wanted to talk about all the ways in which it's not a part just a party you know not it's not just a, a celebration or not just a sport and when I say sport I mean you know the sport of DJing um or not just you know not just a, a chance to escape also not just a utopia, you know. I, that, that's one thing that I found interesting in the sort of, you know, every artist kind of carries around these press points, you know. A lot of people say I'm like utopian or something, and that's just nothing could be further from the truth. Like, my day-to-day is actually a little tense <laughs> as a trans person, especially, like, traveling. And, I mean, I say that laughing because it's, like, an understatement. And and I just my life, you know, I, I'm constantly using the music to kind of resuscitate revive feel energy in my body um connect with other people so it's like very essential you know it's not it's not just this um yeah this artifice or this like you said like a like a decoration you know you know it's just taking me back to a time when I just remember I was like so I was so depressed I had to get up for work and I just used to put on um playing with knives bizarre ink uh, every morning just to get out of bed it was like I was like I couldn't get out of bed without this tune and I just I just knew you'd appreciate that (laughs) (laughs) well before I started touring I spent a year with my folks that's where I was really doing nothing but bike riding listening to music taking good care of myself it's wild it's like music can give us so much like I was I, I felt pretty alone during this time but like I would take these 20 mile bike rides and listen to nothing but freestyle and breaks I would then go on to like go DJ and play all that music for people and like that was just like such an amazing time but every every time I you know had a hard day or really was having a hard time you know that that music just take takes it and transforms that pain into something else you know it's not like escape it's like a processing that you do with the music or something it makes you stronger or something I don't know I get it and I I mean I just I just know that you're sort of person like me that cries in the rave (laughs) (laughs) I cry when I'm DJing (laughs) (laughs) I see people who don't even smile when they're playing I'm like (laughs) I got the tears rolling down my face yeah yeah. (laughs) do you know what I think it's yeah I think you know being able to cry being moved by music or or art whatever it is whatever your thing I think that's to me what feeling like spiritually connected is someone said to me oh that means your heart connected because I didn't cry for years yeah. and years like I couldn't feel anything I was numb um so when I cry now through joy that just shows me that my spirit is alive and I do cry very easily with joy these days um <laughs> and you know that's and, so good and other stuff yeah I mean I, I like when I'm playing records I mean it's like when I'm playing records for people like I, they're as much in my body as they would maybe more so even than like times alone you know I when I play a love song it's it's I mean it (laughs) so yeah yeah 
and I get, and I guess I think you know that's another thing not to blow smoke up your ass as they say but um uh like (laughs) all right then I'll go for it Uh, but I think in terms of kind of house music you know when I was introduced to it it was this kind of like expression of freedom this like kind of letting go of your inhibitions and being you know free being anti-establishment being all these things and 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 you know obviously with the commercialization of that kind of culture, you know, everything's changed. And now for me, like the dominant kind of DJ image is like very cool, doesn't say a lot, um, doesn't smile a lot, doesn't dance a lot, um, but just looks really cool and wears really expensive clothes. And I just sort of feel like you are the antithesis of that. Not saying that you're not cool, but you know, you're cool in, in a warm way, in an open hearted way. So that's what I find so refreshing. I shop at Target and sweat my brains out. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thanks. <laughs> Sorry, is that a bit of a double-edged compliment? I totally know what you're okay. saying. No, I don't take that in the bad way. Okay, yeah. good, good, good. good. <laughs> well, yeah, it became a lifestyle. I mean, DJing became this like cool lifestyle. I mean, when I was a raver, most of the DJs I grew up and loved, these were not like supermodels. They were, everybody had different body shapes and it just was it was like the thing the nerd got good at not the thing the cool person went and did to be cool I mean I'm generalizing but you know that's how it felt then so I mean I I, I hoped to bring some of that just nerd girl who loves music vibe to what I do because it's just who I am <laughs> but that's it I mean I guess yeah it's just just that courage to be authentic to be authentically you I feel like for me that's taken like a lifetime and I and there's still a way to go well I mean same I spent so long in my life like not really being um, authentic to certain aspects of self, you know, and, and, and hiding parts of who I was and in some sense creating an artifice around myself, you know, and I just like no interest in doing that again. <laughs> you know, I'm a 45-year-old DJ. What am I, who, who am I going to be cool to, you know, unless I'm just myself? So. Well, you are, the, you are, you are so cool. You are my definition of cool. Well, thanks, Millie. That does actually lead us on, because I did want to talk a little bit about your coming out story, and I am interested to hear about your experience of that. When did you start to kind of question your gender? When did that start for you? I'm glad you asked. I remember reading like a Time Life magazine cover story a few years ago when I when I came out. Um, I was on my parents' <laughs> dining room table, and it told a story of a young girl, and she had told her parents you know, who, who she was at a very young age. And then they took steps to help her. That's not how it is for everybody, you know? Like, um, a lot of trans people come to the realization that they're transgender at any number of different times in their lives. And when that realization kind of comes, you know, it can kind of come in a very unsteady ways. I mean, it's a, an unusual experience and, and difficult to process because there isn't a lot of, like, cultural sanctioning of the experience. So for trans people to get their information um it's getting easier but um for many years what was available on the internet was pretty problematic and then what you saw in movies was pretty awful (laughs) so you know like how could i see myself in the kinds of tragic characters that i saw portrayed you know in, in media um the experience just didn't seem what i was experiencing didn't seem like what they were experiencing so I, my understanding of who I was came quite late in life. I spent many, many years trying to fit myself in, into a, 
a certain box and, and it just wasn't working for me. I got into a pretty negative place in my life and it was really in those times of, of really intense depression and, and, and even, you know, suicidalness that I, um, I was like, you know, uh, this thing you feel, it's real. You got to deal with it. And it's not just something you can like put in a box under the bed for the rest of your fucking life. Like you've got to deal with this. So for me, it was just like, I don't know, you know, more, more just sort of kind of seeing myself in those moments was pretty powerful. Um, but it was when I started talking to other trans people and when I started to express myself that I started to build a lot of strength in my identity and confidence and a sense of who I was in the world. Um, Cause it's really hard to like build that sort of thing when you're a closeted woman, you know, when like no one knows who you are. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so I, I, um, it, it was only like, like five or six years ago. And so in terms of, um, kind of leading up to that you've said you sort of touched on earlier that you know there were problems with substance abuse you were feeling suicidal um do you feel like that was all related to you kind of not accepting this part of yourself or accepting yourself as you are now oh I think so I mean sure of course um you know because I um I hated my this part of myself, you know, and I was trying to suppress it. It sounds like a kind of like a dark night of the soul almost. It's scary because you're starting to shake off everything you think you know about yourself and suddenly you're lost in the world. And that's that can be a really dark place to be. But you are emerging into something new. And I wonder, hearing you talk about that reminds me of that concept and that's how I try to think of it I mean you know in terms of the narrative of my own life it's like okay well I really wish that that I could have had a different experience acted different been different but like I wasn't like that's what happened <laughs> so what am I going to do with that how am I going to try to live better and be better and try to like you know move past those things so and do you remember like the day you, you kind of made your decision to transition and, and what that looked like, what, what that day looked like? Oh, wow. I do, actually. Um, this is a hard one um, because I don't, you know, I the, the one sort of thing I, I always like to be careful of talking about the past, talk about other people. Um, I had an experience with someone I was seeing, uh, which which hurt me. And I'm being very honest here. I actually haven't been asked this question. Um and I thought, I have to do something to change how I feel because this is just awful. <laughs> so I went one day um, and to a clinic and got hormones and, and started. And I remember, um, I remember right after I went to my girlfriend's house at the time, she's also a trans woman. And, and you know, we talked about it and it was, it was kind of, it was a beautiful moment. Um, you know, nothing had actually happened inside my body yet, but it felt like a new day was starting, you know? So, um, you know, it's, it's tough when you're trans and you come out cause you, you know, you, you're trying to kind of navigate how to make yourself feel better, you know, and the whole world, what they tell you is that you come out and then everyone says, you're fine how you are. 
<laughs> you know, I love you how you are. You don't need to change, you know, but really there's probably some things you need to change, whether it's your name or, you know, in my case, I wanted to take hormones. It's not something all trans people should have to do, need to do, want to do, but it was good for me, you know? So, um, so I was trying to navigate all that, um, in the best way I could. And, and, um, but it was definitely one of those moments where it was like, yeah, okay, I'm going to do this. I'd been thinking about it for a long time at that point, but this is sort of like pull the trigger kind of moment. I know that like healing is not linear. I absolutely know that from my own experience. Yeah. But did it did it feel like that was a, a turning point for you in terms of things starting to get better? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, and, and having access to affirming health care is, is really huge. I mean, like I said, it's not something all trans people are going to want to do or need to do. But like, you know, for me, it really helped me. Um, and it was a part of a whole, you know, set of things I did. Because, you know, I mean, tra- transition can take different forms, you know. Um, but for me to to really, like, be like, you know, no, I'm going to let myself make sure my name is, like, legally recorded and have my gender correct on my documents and all this stuff. So um, it, was a, it was a very empowering time, you know, because I was really sort of taking charge of something that had been, in my life, debilitating for a long time. And, um, and you're called Eris, who is the goddess of chaos. Was that intentional? Yeah, well, I mean, kind of. I mean, I needed, I had come out, you know, and I had, I had, I, I'm assuming not everyone listening is trans. So what trans people um, refer to like their, what you would probably call their old name as their dead name. Um, so, so, you know, I, I was still going by this dead name and um, I, I was also, though, at the same time telling people, hey, you know, I, I, I'm a woman. I'm, I, I need you to take me seriously. Like, I actually am this person. Um, I know I'm, you know, been on this earth a while, but like, really, like, this is for real. I was finding that hard. And one of the things I like let myself do was to create like a, like a, just like a cute screen name on Facebook. So I wasn't like, you know, as I was trying to, in some sense, like rewrite the identity that people had in their heads for me. So it was like sort of one of these like moves. Like I didn't really think I was like, like having this moment of finding my name. But um, so I, I did this look up for Greek goddess. And there's this heiress who I'd never heard of before. And I'm like, she's, you know, she's the goddess of chaos. And it was her like, it was like her feminine spirit and her, her oppositional spirit, which really like led to good things. And, and you know, she's like sort of an, an early symbol of anti-patriarchy. So I was like, okay, well this, <laughs> I like heiress. I think heiress, right? And then I started to do some shows and then I changed my name legally. And, and, and now it's like, feels so weird to even say this. Cause like, I'm, you know, I'm heiress. But it is a special thing for me. And you'll find, um, you know, talking to trans people that, that their names are really special to them, you know, because it's like a name we, we chose, you know, and, and, it, and it, has, it has all the wisdom of a life behind it, you know. So there's some real power in that. <laughs> when you look back, um, you know, before, before that, before you kind of found yourself, I guess, um, and look back at yourself kind of lost and in the darkness and feeling you know as you said before suicidal what is there anything you could have given yourself any wisdom any knowledge that you could have passed back to yourself I wish I just could have like given myself permission so much sooner you know just to be I don't know it's like we're born into this world and everyone tells us who we are and then there's this whole like sort of 
thing we're, I think, supposed to do in adulthood where we rewrite that story or something. But I, I just wish I could have given myself permission and also told myself, as scared as you are, like, actually, it's it's going to be okay. And in the ways it's not, it's still going to be worth it because, um, you know, I was so dominated by fear. It really turned me inside out in so many ways. Um, you know, we only this is our life, you know, and, and to be, uh, to be afraid to be ourselves. is just such a shame. There was this one time at a show, um, and someone came up to me and they told me they were, that they were having experiences of gender dysphoria and they'd never told anyone before. And my advice to them, an actual real human being was find that one person. Cause they were like, I don't know how to talk about this. I don't even know where to start. I said, you don't have to figure all that out now. Find the one person you trust, maybe your best friend, maybe a family member you love that's on your side and, and tell them and it might not be easy, but start there, you know? And so I guess I wish I, I could have given myself even just that very like sort of practical advice. Like, like Jesus, tell your best friend. It's okay. <laughs> you know, it's okay. You can tell them you're having these feelings and experiences and they're going to still love you. And if they don't fuck them, but it's, it's not that easy. And, 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 you know, and, and safety is an issue. And I had the privilege of coming out. I should say that, you know, because all over the world, you know, there are a lot of people who are never going to get to have that experience of, of, of engaging with this in like a public way, you know, um, cause, uh, I don't know, you know, most pl- most places in the world, it's very hard to have a public life as a trans person. Like, Do you feel it's changing? It feels like there is a shift to me. Do you feel that? You know better than me. It's absolutely, we're in a state of change. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, it's a twofold thing. So on the one hand, I do think that there's an awareness about trans people that there hasn't been before. And it's, it's in the it's in the sort of political dialogue right now. So that's that's pretty huge. But we are becoming politicized, and so we're becoming targets. And I think you're already seeing anti-trans legislation in the United States. What's that going to look like other places? Right right now here in the U.S., it's taking the form of, like, these sort of, like, athlete bands and stuff, you know. But it's like, I mean, that's, that's one thing. Like, there's so much more, you know. And in most of the world, at one time or another, was illegal to be queer or gay or trans or any, any, any of these identities, you know. So... I don't know. I just I just worry we're being politicized and we're going to be targets for politicians and for the conservative right wing people all over the world. I know that we've spoken about self-healing through music, but I'm really interested in a quote that I read from you about the healer's journey. You know, this this journey that you've been on, this kind of trial and emergence um, and seeing it as a as a healer's journey. Can you tell me more about that? That's sort of my way of sort of viewing, trying to kind of like view my narrative in a positive way, you know, Um, because I just like other trans people, you know, I'm a survivor. I've been through stuff. And uh, the journey of a healer is really one in which you sort of take it all and try to create, you know, something positive and and to try to to actually share that with other people. That's the critical component. Um, And so... I love DJing. I love house music. You know, I love being an artist and all this stuff. But I mean, my, my, my core goal is to make people's lives better. And I don't mean just making them feel good. I mean, like the whole bit, like, part of the experience of, of, of art is to experience and process pain and trauma and, and all that other stuff. So I, I view uh, what I do through that lens. Because I, I think it's one in which gives my art some real power in the world, too. I think that is, you know, that's definitely something that I... I get from you and and that I'm drawn to plus you play some 
absolutely sick genes as well. <laughs> and, uh, well, I mean, you and I share taste so closely. Oh my God. Yeah, cut from the same cloth, definitely. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I am trying to say this without sounding too corny, but you finding yourself has also happened at the time you found like great success in the world um, in terms of your DJing, something that you were kind of doing for years, you know, um, kind of a jobbing DJ. And then suddenly you're like, Mix Mag's number one DJ. Well, not suddenly. It's not suddenly, is it? Because it's after 20 years of hard work. But it felt kind of sudden. I mean, in the moment. You yeah. Know. This sudden ascent where suddenly like you kind of really resonated and and, and enjoyed this incredible success and, and were able to kind of be a DJ uh, full time and travel the world and headline festivals and tour your own parties and all sorts of incredible things um, have happened for you over the last few years. And I wondered like how you've found that kind of, that kind of success, like that kind of fame and success. It's just, it's so strange to talk about it right now because I haven't even played a gig in a year. You know what I mean? But yes, um, you know, I know that that's temporary. Uh, It was an incredible feeling. It was a shock to me. I have dedicated so much of my life to record collecting and mixing and synthesizers and you know all this stuff I mean being honest there was a time in my life when uh not too long ago when um you know it felt like maybe that had that had been something that I had you know maybe put too much time into like maybe it wasn't something that I I you know maybe I should have built like some career for myself that I like doing something else or something but you know, it was, it was incredible to actually get to kind of live those dreams, I guess. Also hard when it when it all came to a screeching halt, because, you know, I, I it, it was such a it was such an exciting and wonderful time. Um, those couple of years to be playing. I mean, I was doing like, I think close to 100 shows a year, you know, 20, 30 countries a year. I mean, it was it was pretty wild. So um, um, and wonderful. And yeah, so how has how has that been? I do feel so much for you and for people I've seen who are just kind of just taking off, you know, and and suddenly it's like it's it's cut short. That must be hard. The coming home and then everything like canceling. That was tough. Ever since I started touring and this sort of acceleration happened. I had this mantra I would tell myself, which was always like, this is happening because other people want this to happen for you. So like, act accordingly. Like, this is nothing, you know, you're entitled to. This is um, something you're very fortunate and it's all on the good deeds and kindness of other people. You know, like the hard work, throwing parties, promoting events, the record labels, the, you know, the people who write, all the people who write articles about dance music to try to create a, a linguistic body of work about this music you know like all these people that will go into someone actually being able to like go around the world and do their music so to feel that collective pain at at once you know was kind of a lot you know because it's not just about like me not DJing it's about like literally like hundreds of people's energy and plans and I don't know I mean this the you know the, the scene is kind of an incredible organism and so I happen to know that you're working on an album or you've just finished an album. I'm mixing two more songs down. So I, I wrote the whole album and then I engineered it. Um, so it's been it's been quite a bit of work. 
that I'm really excited to share with people. Amazing. Something I really love about uh, you and Maya and the way that you DJ is like the messaging that you, that is so clear and, and thought out throughout your sets, you know, your like uplifting messages of love and unity. Um, and I love that. And I, I used to love because because we met when we were working, uh, when I was producing you on the re- residency. And it was just always such a joy because there was such a story to, to the music that you play. I was just wondering what kind of story um, is is in the album. Well, there are there are a number of narratives in the album. I was looking at it from that lens as I looked at all the songs the other day and thinking about it again. It's like, it's interesting. The themes are very like almost simple. The songs are about wanting to be around other people, about wanting to move, <laughs> about wanting to feel free. Um, so, uh, which is, you know, of course, <clears throat> standard dance music um, themes, but uh, but that's that's what I needed to to hear uh, in the last year. So a lot of these songs are actually pretty radiant, even though when I wrote them, I was in kind of kind of like a negative or dark place in some ways. But you know, again, like it's it, you know the writing the writing the songs just is, is like a a process of catharsis and transformation. So I'm always trying to change something that is kind of hard into something that is resolved, you know, and some using music to do it. So. Um, I don't know. It's going to be interesting because the album will come out in September, probably when people might be dancing for the first time. And it is kind of a party record. So, um, you know, um, music is so much connected to the time in which it is received. So I think I think the themes may match up with with that experience of, of having, you know, being with people again. Um, that, that would be nice. Oh, yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait um, to hear it, um, hopefully in a field somewhere. And from my experience, my past is something that I find difficult to talk about. And I think because there's still like shadows of shame, you know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not kind of proud of some of the things I did and the hurt that I caused people. And I'm not comparing myself to you, like, you know, my experience to yours. But there is that, you know, that's true, though, perhaps like the reason I find it so difficult to talk about the past, my past is because I'm worried that it's going to affect my future like or it's it's going to taint how people see me now not that I really care how people see me but we're all human and we all care you know I know what you're saying yeah but yeah I do it I do it because I think you know it has the potential to help people and to offer hope to people who are in dark places and I just wondered like how that how that was for you and how you found sort of talking about your past and, and and why you've chosen to do so today well, you know, I think um, so much of our life is experienced in psyche and um, so much of sort of contemporary culture is about really suppressing that. Um, so I think that it's really empowering to talk about these things as sort of hard as it is. Um, I know for a lot of my life, I felt alone in my experiences. So when I talk about things that I feel vulnerable about and then sometimes that's rewarded you know someone says well I had that experience too so when you really have experienced shared traumas and things like this you know talking about it can really relieve some of that guilt that we all kind of carry around and shame about our our lives I mean I I think most people live very closeted lives I'm not talking about sexuality I just have one final question so what uh song 
brings you back to life or gives you life? What song brings me back to life? Just one. Just one. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> Sat in, an, um, in a whole barn full of records. <laughs> no, it's true. What song? Br- oh my gosh, there are so many. Okay. Um. Okay. The song that's been bringing me back to life lately is um, by Smoke and Beats, and it's called Brighter Day. Um, it's from 1994. And it's just like one of these beautiful sort of like, like you know, like kind of hands in the air house songs uh, about um, love. And, and, and it's just, I don't know, it just delivers the message in a way that feels so real and you can just feel it in your body. It's really beautiful. And I cannot, I, this is a record I've never played for anyone yet. So it's in my list of like things to share. <laughs> yes, I love it already. I'm going to put it on straight away. Um, and um, one of the best days of your life or the best day of your life? Thinking about one of the best days of my life. Um, I've had a lot of best days, but I think having not played for a year, I'm, I, my mind goes to a Panorama Bar gig. That's on my birthday. Um, and it was the first time I played the club proper. I'd played in the patio, like outside. Um, and Maya was with me, my, my, my love. And we went and got vegan donuts <laughs> and then went and had this extraordinary experience together. Um, and it was just sort of like like the birthday. I mean, you, I just never thought it would have. <laughs> One of those sets that you just not, will never, ever, 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 ever forget. Thanks, Eris. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, I'll see you soon. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much, Eris, and thank you so much for listening. I'd love to carry on the conversation with you on social media. Uh, you can follow us and find out about all the latest episodes uh, at Back to Life Pod on Instagram. Also, if you've enjoyed this episode, I know that you hear it all the time, but please do share it with your friends. Uh, please give us a follow or subscribe. And if you have a moment to leave us a review, that would be awesome. It will help other people to find us and also it will make me really happy. This podcast is an independent production by me, Millie Charles, and the beautiful music that you've heard was composed by Double O. The very cool and cute artwork that you can see on our social channels is by Georgie Thompson. Thank you so much. Uh, See you next time. Take care.